Hello, Marketeers. Welcome to another episode of AEC Marketeer Podcast, exploring AEC marketing and beyond. I'm your host, Keelan Cox, and I'll be exploring marketing trends and answering your most pressing questions to help you thrive as an AEC Marketeer. Well, thank you, Marketeers, so much for joining me. Today, I have on Kristen Rees. For more than a decade, Kristen has served as a professional writer and editor across multiple industries from nonprofit and academia to technology and film. While pursuing her master's degree, Kristen taught rhetoric and research-based writing at the university level. She has also worked in publishing, where she contributed editorial work to more than 20 titles. In the AEC space, she has grown from a proposal manager and proposal operations specialist to a leader and mentor of bid management teams, providing guidance on effective messaging, document development best practices, and public speaking. Kristen's mission is to help communicators tap into their values and make deliberate choices to connect with their most important audiences. She is multilingual, a former competitive ballroom dancer, and a proud supporter of the Oxford comma. Welcome, Kristen. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. I am a fellow supporter of the Oxford comma. Excellent. <laughs> that The debate is alive and well in the world, so I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> so before we dig into what I brought you on here to talk about, which is saying things with style and using probably one of the most underrated resources in writing, I'm curious how you got started in this industry. What's your story? So my story is kind of a long and winding road. Long before I even knew what AEC was, I'd already been writing for a number of years, but my passion for language honestly started, as cliche as it sounds, when I was a kid. I always knew it was going to be an important part of my life because I grew up in a household where we spoke both Italian and English. My mom and dad were both born and raised in Italy. And like many kids, I wrote a lot. I wrote some really bad poetry. I actually had a dream of being published. I actually knew what the writer's market was by the time I was like nine years old. I wrote a bunch of song parodies with my sister before I knew who Weird Al was. Yeah, I was a huge fan of Weird Al when I, when I discovered who he was. Thanks. So I knew early on that words connected people and that conveying language, making it understandable, engaging in any way possible was my mission. So to nobody's mm -hmm. surprise, my major in college was English. And it was when I was in college that my career with professional documents actually started. And to some extent with marketing as well. I worked at my university's foundations building, sort of writing newsletters, mailers for the university donors, reviewing event programs, and really organizing high profile events because I lived in Vegas. So a lot of them were in conjunction with Las Vegas resorts. Okay. But of course, after college, I kind of had to think, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? Right? Like most college mm -hmm. students. And that's when the pull officially came to be like, I love grammar. I'm really good with language. I'm multilingual. I want to be an editor. Mm. And then there was this conflicting thought of, but do I want to correct people's grammar for the rest of my life? Right. And honestly, I had a misconception about what editorial work is that a lot of people tend to have. But the reality is editing is an entire process, not just one step in the process. You're really helping someone to shape their writing. Mm. So to better equip myself, I did what any good nerd would do. I went to grad school. So 
I moved across the country to Georgia to go to grad school. I did a lot of writing, consulting, tutoring along the way. And in my master's program was really where I learned virtually every fundamental concept about editing, assessing an audience and style guides. And during the program, I had an opportunity to grow my career even further. I was teaching. I developed my own curriculum for that. I got my first editorial credit while working with global authors. And I finally got to work in publishing, which was awesome. The publishing house was actually my client for my master's thesis. And I learned so much from them. They taught me what it means to put a deliverable together and how collaborative the process is. And then reality sank in that unless I moved to New York, there's not a whole lot of places to grow in publishing. Sure. And while I was actually in my master's program, I learned a lot about editing in STEM. Mm. And it kind of occurred to me, that's probably my biggest chance at growth. You know, I'm a creative person obsessed with words and numbers and data are just not my thing. And I, that was honestly the whole appeal to me. I wanted sure. to share my passion of writing with people who maybe didn't live in that world. And I wanted to challenge myself by learning from science-minded people, kind of that symbiotic relationship, sure. if you will. Yeah. And it just so happened that, you know, I needed a full-time job with benefits that involved working with documents after my master's. And that was the chance encounter with AEC. So I sent out my resume everywhere online. I didn't have much of a network back then in Georgia. And an engineering firm got back to me about a marketing assistant position that I'd applied to, and I got the job. And that was sort of my first ushering into proposals in STEM and in business as a, as a whole. And I've been in this industry less than five years, but I've been extremely fortunate to move from proposal management to team leadership, working with Fortune 500 companies. And I've just grown so much faster than I honestly thought I could. I'm super grateful. And that editing process experience from before has helped me so much as a marketer because you're doing so much project management and audience awareness, as well as working with text. So that's my very long winded story. <laughs> <laughs> Big time. I mean, as you were explaining, I was like, I can see how all these skills would translate over to AEC, like seamlessly. Yeah. So let's get kicked off here. Before we really dig into the nitty gritty, I think we need to establish a baseline of what is a style guide? Yes. So to talk about style guides, we kind of have to have a sense of what style is, right? Mm. Contrary to popular belief, style itself is mostly not about how formal or informal your writing is. That can certainly be part of it, but it's far from the main focus. Style is really just a way of doing things. And that usually leans towards like a system of standardization. There has to be an important balance when you are achieving style because you don't want to be super mechanical. You don't want to sound like a robot. You, otherwise, you take the humanity out of language. And, you know, we have to be able to figure out what works in a specific written context. So when we talk about style guides, you know, most communications and marketing departments are probably familiar with the most popular ones and are already using them. Things like AP, that's probably the most common one in business. Chicago Manual of Style is rampant in publishing and sometimes in government work. Studies are written usually using APA format, and people might have some bad memories of high school and college having to write an MLA format. That's yeah. the, the academic route. Mm -hmm. So as far as like a formal definition for a style guide, it really is an industry-based document that, depending on the typical audiences of that industry, it provides guidelines of how a writer should treat certain elements of language, anything from capitalization, abbreviation, 
comma usage, the list goes on and on. Many companies do adopt one of those styles that I mentioned before, and it informs their whole communication system. But there's also house style guides, which are usually the exceptions or the deviations from those industry guides. And for right. that reason, people sometimes call it like a corporate writing guide or an editorial guide. Okay, got it. When you're talking about APA, AP style, the first thing I think of is that it just basically defines grammar, which I know from talking <laughs> to you isn't true. But how do you see grammar is different from style or how does grammar fit into style? Yeah, that's an excellent question. In a nutshell, grammar is about what is technically correct, while style is more about what's consistent or appropriate. Mm. So I'll start with the first half of that equation. And I think that means I have to address an elephant in the room, right? Okay. Where a lot of people are kind of intimidated by grammar and understandably yeah. so, right? They will, It's kind of a necessary evil for some people. They may have had some negative experiences, you know, in school where they were just kind of inculcated with these rules without being taught the rationale behind the rule. Right. And so none of them really, none of those rules seem to make any sense, you know, that's understandable. But as a result, grammar kind of gets a bad, gets a bad rap and it, it makes it kind of misunderstood in more ways than one. So I think what we need to realize first is that grammar is one of the building blocks of language. You know, it's part of how we communicate and we can make sense of it. You know, there is a method to the madness. So for example, instead of saying, oh, don't use a comma splice when that might not mean very much to anybody. We might think of it as a comma can't end a sentence because that's not its role. Mm. So all the punctuation marks have a function. And if we learn to use those foundations of language in the way that they were intended, which is as tools, even if grammar tends to feel more prescriptive, it's not always as needlessly strict as we think. There are fundamental truths about it, and that's why it's more about the correctness side of things. Style, on the other hand, is considered more arbitrary. It can technically be dictated by an organization or even just situationally. So if you start with those quote unquote grammar rules, you know, the things that for clarity and convention purposes, we can't break away from, then we decide what makes sense for the given audience. So while, you know, we can't change the fact that a comma can't end a sentence, what you can decide is, Am I going to use the Oxford comma, you know, the famous Oxford comma, and mm -hmm. then why or why not? The decision should be made ultimately with your audience in mind. You want the clearest, most consistent text and a concrete use of style is what's going to get that to happen. So in summary, even though there is a little bit of overlap between the two, grammar is about what is right and style is about taking those many right options available and selecting the best, most fitting one to apply consistently for your audience. I don't think I've ever had it broken down for me like that. That <laughs> it makes so much sense because I yeah. feel like we have used grammar, especially on social media. Like the first thing I think of is, <laughs> you know, when someone says something a little bit rude, like the first thing you'll look at to pick apart is their grammar. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's almost seen as like a gotcha. If, mm -hmm. if you find someone's grammar error. So I like that. It's just like, these are the rules, but you get to pick the rules and then apply them. And then that's your style guide. Did I interpret that correctly? Yeah. Yeah. I would say that's a, that's a pretty fair assessment of, you know, taking what, what needs to happen and then 
sort of molding it to what, what you need it to be. Cause there right. is some level of flexibility for sure. Got it. Okay. So then what do you think is most important for writers or marketers to consider about style or why should they use a style guide? Yeah. So to your point, what we were just talking about, that concept of taking something that's sort of prescriptive and trying to be more flexible with it. I actually like to think of the effective use of both grammar and style um, Mm -hmm. and relate it to another tool that we have in life, which is a budget. So many people view a budget as highly restrictive, right? They might avoid budgeting altogether because they don't want to be told they can't or shouldn't do something or that it's not affording them the appropriate flexibility. Right. But in reality, a budget is meant to give you freedom of choice. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the case with grammar and style. And what I think is most important to remember about both of those things is that you have choices. And those choices have really profound rhetorical consequences. So, for example, if you list items in a series in order of increasing or decreasing importance, that's known as climax or anticlimax, respectively. These each communicate something different to your audience. And another example might be like items listed in threes. It's particularly effective because of a well-known rule we have in rhetoric of the rule of threes. It just resonates in people's brain differently. So these choices have an effect on your reader. And I'll go as so far as to say that grammar and style are actually empowering to writers for that reason. And because we have so many choices at our disposal, we have to be able to note them to make those specific decisions to guide ourselves and the people we collaborate with And we need that direction to be able to write well. I actually have a quote that I sort of live by that's been attributed to Pablo Picasso. I don't actually know if he's the one who said this, but it's been a personal philosophy for me. And that's learn the rules like a pro so you can break them like an artist. I love that. That's beautiful. (laughs) It is. It is. It really, it, it sits in my soul for that reason. It's ultimately about what good knowledge and application of style can do. Right. And it allows you to become an expert and then take the expertise to customize and play with the material. I also think it's absolutely vital to keep your style guide manageable. If you have too many exceptions on top of exceptions, it's going to be really difficult to follow and it just becomes a paperweight because no one's going to use it. A quick pro tip also for marketers and marketing leaders in that I hope will emphasize how style guides are important. If you're looking to join a marketing team or for marketing leaders, if you're bringing on new staff, you might want to keep this in mind. If you want to get a sense of how organized a proposal team is and their mindset around quality of writing, ask them what style guide they use and who owns their team style guide and when it was last updated. And the answer is going to tell you a lot. Interesting. So I'm thinking of a few companies that I've worked at in the past, and one of them had a pretty robust style guide, but I don't know that. And I know that it would be like the company's style. I I wouldn't know what it was based on or when it was updated. (laughs) It falls through the the cracks. It really does. (laughs) And, and it becomes, cumbersome if it's too too you know detailed like I said exceptions on top of exceptions are are not the way to go you got to simplify it and and it's it's really meant to serve you and if it's not then something's wrong ideally if we were looking at like the the pinnacle of a great style guide how long would you say it should be like in your experience a style guide yeah so there's 
I would say, depending on how far you're deviating from the industry style guide, I would first and foremost start with an industry guide. Absolutely. Okay. There's no sense in reinventing the wheel. Someone already, sure. you know, built that dictionary of a document to, to kind of dictate these rules right. or guidelines rather. And what I would say is start with the things that based on your own company or your own team, where certain guidelines just don't make sense for your purposes. Right. I'd say okay. start there and use those exceptions, make them very deliberate, make them yeah. very deliberate exceptions and go from there because most of the time the existing guide is going to help you. And thankfully a lot of those are online modernly. You can just do a quick, you know, universal search or keyword search and you'll find what you're looking for in these industry guides. So in terms of page length, I mean, I would say an electronic PDF of a house style guide, maybe 10 to 15 pages, depending on how you're formatting it. Like there shouldn't be a laundry list of exceptions. And if you really wanted to, if you know that your, your team is using certain guidelines from an industry guide pretty regularly, and rather than having to look that up all the time, maybe just create like a top 10 at the top of your style guide there. And then underneath list the exceptions where it's like, Hey, even though AP says this, we're going to do this instead. And I think it's very easy, even if you're creating it in a more readable format with larger font or more document design involved, I think 10 to 15 pages is perfectly fine. And then is AP typically the most common in the AEC industry? From what I found, yeah, that's definitely okay. the case. Awesome. So when we're looking at style, where does style get added? quote unquote. Yeah. So the style guide itself and the house guide in particular, it's sort of like a chicken or egg situation is kind of like how I like to think about it. Because in reality, that guide should exist before any project is ever started in any firm ever. And that usually doesn't happen, but you know, you kind of have to set the precedent at the beginning, but on a project or proposal basis, I do acknowledge that there's a lot of like strategic messaging and layout decisions that have to be made throughout a document's development. So certainly it makes sense for those higher order things to be addressed first. I would make a case that written style should be considered as early as the first draft, because the first draft is when you're really getting a sense of the words that you'll be dealing with in that particular document and with that audience you know, which acronyms or terms are going to pop up the most often, whether you're dealing with really large numbers or symbols and how to represent them using commas or not with those numbers. And then another reason really is you want the style determined and made known to your team as soon as possible because of the nature of how collaborative writing works. There's no there's no one opinion ever, right? Like everyone's got all these competing opinions. And so you have to determine when writing a proposal or creating a document, who exactly is making the executive decisions on those things. And so amidst those dozens of opinions, the style document is the great equalizer. And the sooner that style decision maker is, is decided upon and given for your project, not just for your department or team, the sooner you will be giving writers and collaborators a guide to follow and ultimately the better the written outcome. So in theory, it could also actually reduce the amount of time you spend on copy edits and even you know, in later drafts or in red team reviews and who doesn't want that? Okay, yeah, that makes sense. 
As we're digging in here, you are the one who brought my attention to the fact that there could be a style sheet. So what is the difference between a style guide versus a style sheet? Yes. So when you asked me a moment ago about the the page length, that was the first thing that came to my mind is, okay, there is a style sheet option. Mm -hmm. Those two documents serve slightly different purposes. So the biggest difference is not just how long they are, but then their ultimate context in which they're being used. Okay. Um, So style guides, because they cover so many different elements are usually much longer, particularly the industry guides. As I said, they're usually like a brick. And then you might have a slightly, you know, slightly longer, like I said, 10, 15, 20 page house guide with some chapters or a couple of small sections in it. And ultimately style guides are meant to prompt and ensure consistency of how those elements are presented across an industry or multiple departments or multiple types of documents. But as we know, there's certain, you know, documents, projects, or certain sort of niche audiences that may have unique needs or expectations. And we need to be able to address those specifically. And that's where the style sheet comes in. As the name suggests, a sheet is much shorter, usually like a page, maybe two, You can usually compare it to like an acronym list in a federal proposal where it kind of looks like an alphabetical index of the unique treatment of the words you're using that as they should be appearing consistently in your document. And one other thing is a style sheet can be used um, as sort of a guide for your proofreader during like your gold team or your white glove review or whatever it is that your firm chooses to do for final approval of a document. They need to have that as a point of reference So that way they know what the live copy is supposed to look like. And there's, you know, that's another reason why ultimately deciding on style really early, as early as maybe your first draft even is probably really important. So style sheets in a nutshell are more project or document specific, while style guides are much more comprehensive across documents and departments. Got it. So just as a scenario where I'm thinking a style sheet might be a good option is like if you're doing a JV submittal where you're sort of mushing two brands together, mm-hmm. would that be correct? I would definitely, yeah, you need to decide between you, you're going to need that decision maker, right? You want the decision maker on the, either the prime or one half of the JV to mm-hmm. decide, Hey, this is really what our guides tend to be like. And here's what we tend to look at. You have right. to kind of collaborate with the JV and figure out what are the commonalities between that guide that they have and your own? And what's going to serve the audience you guys are writing together for? Does that answer the question? Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. So then how does style tie in with the company's brand? I can see it being sort of a, a brand asset, but it almost seems like they, they belong together. Yes. Yeah. I think they're a match made in heaven. If you, if you really want to know, essentially (laughs) all corporations have a branding guide, right? We've seen them, they address, you know, company logo usage, the different fonts, the RGB and CMYK code for the corporate colors. And so sometimes a style guide is really part of that document or it works in conjunction with it beyond the practical use though style technically affects more than the written words on the page. And in that way, style is truly part of your brand. The bigger picture with style is the impression you're giving your clients, that audience, with your consistent and deliberate style decisions or lack thereof. So just like your branding and your visuals represent your company and its reputation, so do your style decisions. Because again, it's a big part of how you're communicating with those people outside of your firm. And so the most critical aspect that are more sort of like a more critical effect, I would say, is 
you know, an attention to style and brand breeds trust. And without that trust from your client, you've pretty much got nothing. So that's why I think it's, it certainly ties together with style and is important with your branding as well. Perfect. So then if there was one piece of advice for people working on documents that you could give, what would it be? Other than shouting from the rooftops <laughs> that departments should be making and using and updating a style guide mm. just because it makes you a better writer. Right. I would say don't underestimate what your reader is noticing. Oh, okay. If a, if a choice you're making is distracting to the reader, or if, for example, you're not consistent, like a word on page 12 has a hyphen and a few pages later, that same word doesn't have a hyphen anymore. Mm -hmm. Even if they can't pinpoint why they're distracted, you risk that distraction taking away from your message. So always be mindful of what you're putting on the page because it really does matter. I love that. So if our listeners would like to get in touch with you or learn more about your work, where should I direct them? So I can be found pretty easily on LinkedIn. I'm also part of the proposal industry experts or PI online community. So I'm sure we can provide a link to that if anyone in the field is interested in joining. It's a great community. I'm always happy to chat on LinkedIn about, you know, writing, editing, comedy, proposals, all kinds of nerd stuff. And if anyone's really interested in hopping down a rabbit hole about style, my master's thesis is actually published online too. So if you if you dare enter, there's, <laughs> there's going to be a link for that probably as well. Yes. Yeah. So what I'll do is I'll include a link to your LinkedIn profile, your master's thesis, which is so cool. And then do you want to just, you mentioned Pi. I We haven't had anyone on to specifically talk about it. Yeah. Do you want to just give like a high level overview of what Pi is for the listeners who don't know? Certainly. Yeah. So it was established by Catherine Bennett and Ben Klein. We mm -hmm. actually had our launch towards the end of July and it's a proposal community by proposal professionals for proposal professionals. Okay. Um, you know, we exchange resources, ideas, you know, we we talk a lot about mental health in in this space and how important that is. I know you had Rochelle Ray yeah. uh, on a few episodes ago to talk about burnout and we actually just had sort of a for lack of better words, burnout boot camp. If okay. you will, like how to recover from boot camp or from boot camp from uh, <laughs> from how to recover from from burnout. burnout. And I know they're going to have like a new session on like 30 days for a go, no go process, how to build one. Okay. And it's just a great, it's a great platform to exchange ideas, to relate to each other, to kind of lean on each other because it's a wild industry, right? Yeah. We, uh, we, we put a lot of ourselves into this kind of work and it's, it's good to have that camaraderie for sure. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Your enthusiasm about style and grammar <laughs> is rubbing off. I've never I'm, been more jazzed to talk about grammar in my I'm, life. I'm happy. I'm happy to hear that. I feel like I've done my job then. <laughs> it's been, it's been a blast. It really has. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you. All right, marketeers. That's a wrap on this week's episode of the AEC Marketeer podcast. Do you feel like an expert in style? Cause I sure do. Thank you, Kristen, for that. As we open up the new year, I wanted to share some exciting news, or at least I think it's exciting. I am going to be starting a quarterly book club this year. So there are going to be four books. And at the end of each quarter, we're going to talk to the author themselves. I will do my best to make sure that there is an audiobook version of the book, uh, but I can't guarantee that. 
If you're interested in the book club, I will post on LinkedIn as well as um, give you the option to email aecmarketeer at gmail.com if you'd like to be on the distribution list for when we do decide on the book. Um, As always, if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe. And if you are so moved to do so, please leave me a review. I would very much appreciate it. And we will chat soon. And as you well know by now, new episodes are released every other Wednesday. We'll chat soon.
Chat soon.